it's hard to be poor and not have things when others around you have it. For us, nobody had anything. There were times when we just didn't have any money left and there was nothing on the table and we wanted to get the bread. Almost everyone I knew didn't believe in communism. If you have hundreds of thousands in a party, even left party, you are going to have some, well, probably some bad, some good people, but you have only so few. It's going to be a very more brutal, right? Because you do not have a broad diversity. There were these folders that the security kept on all families. My grandfather was sent in prison multiple times. Then when eventually things happened, there was a lot of pressure. It was like a pressure cooker. <laughs> like everybody was ready. It was just like the worst life you could imagine. Uh, when you are going to get admitted to a high school or a college, you, you take an exam. And that's practically the only thing that matters. Uh, so your GPA is not very important. Welcome to the Immigrant Computer Scientists podcast, where we talk to computer scientists who immigrated from their home countries for study or for work or for other reasons. In these oral history interviews, you will find established and renowned computer scientists from across academia and industry, narrating their experiences of immigrating from where they grew up to a completely different land, often the US. My name is Indy Gupta, and I'm your host. A nation that was behind the Iron Curtain, allied with the Soviet Union for most of the late 1900s. A nation that was a socialist republic from 1947 to 1989. A nation that was ruled by a brutal dictator for nearly 25 years. A nation that was known back then, and even now, for its Olympians, both in sports and in math and science. This nation in East Europe is called Romania. With an area of about 92,000 square miles, Romania is the 81st largest country in the world. This size is slightly smaller than the state of Michigan, the 11th largest state among the 50 United States. The population of Romania is about 19 million. That's around the size of the state of New York, which is the fourth most populous state among the 50 United States. Romania is in East Europe and borders the countries of Bulgaria, Hungary, Moldova, Serbia, Ukraine, and of course, the Black Sea. And in early 2022, Romania has been in the news due to the conflict in East Europe. One of our guests on today's episode grew up in Bucharest, the capital of Romania, during the 1970s, 1980s, and 1990s. Our second guest grew up in Transylvania, in a city called Cluj-Napoca, also around the same decades, 1970s, 80s, and 1990s. The Romania they both grew up in was the Socialist Republic of Romania, which lasted from the end of the Second World War, around 1947, to 1989. Romania was behind the Iron Curtain, and from 1965 to 1989, it was ruled by Nicolae Ceausescu, communist politician and brutal dictator. Ceausescu had been accused of many human rights violations during his rule. All of these come up during the conversation with our guests today. In 1989, around the time that the Soviet Union was disintegrating, there was a revolution in Romania, 
and Romania started its transition from a communist country towards a democracy. Our first guest in today's episode is Jan Stoika, professor at the University of California, Berkeley, since 2000. Jan Stoika is known for developing some of the most well-known industry-wide standard data processing systems. He has developed Apache Spark, Apache Mesos, Tachyon, the Core peer-to-peer system, and many others. And he's converted these into successful entrepreneurial companies and ventures in the U.S. You might know companies such as Databricks, Anyscale, and Conviva. They were all founded by Jan Stoika. Jan Stoika is an ACM fellow and winner of the SIGOPS Mark Weiser Lifetime Achievement Award in Computer Systems. Almost everyone I knew didn't believe in communism. That was Jan Stoika, professor at UC Berkeley. He grew up in Romania in the 1970s and 80s, did his master's from the Polytechnic University of Bucharest in 1989, worked a few years in Romania after that, and then came to the U.S. in 1994 for his Ph.D. And then he stayed on in the U.S. for his career. That's Jan Stoika. You'll hear his voice on today's episode. Our second guest is Rada Mihalcha. She's a professor at the University of Michigan, where she has been since 2013. Rada also directs the Michigan AI Lab. Rada Mihalcha is a stalwart in the areas of natural language processing and artificial intelligence. Getting one PhD is hard enough. Rada Mihalcha has two PhDs to her credit in computer science and in linguistics from the US and UK respectively. Rada received her bachelor's in computer science from the Technical University of Cluj-Napoca, Romania in 1997, that's in Transylvania, and then Rada moved to the US in 1997 for her PhD and has stayed on in the US for her career. There were these folders that the security kept on all families. That was Rada Mihalcha, professor at University of Michigan. She's also an ACM fellow and a AAAI fellow. She's a major promoter of diversity in computer science and for her activities, she has won many awards. And she has initiated tremendous efforts for computer science research and faculty inside Romania. We'll talk about that too in today's episode. That's Rada Mihalcha, a professor at the University of Michigan. As usual, you can find all episodes and detailed episode guides on our website, csimmigrant.org. Again, that's csimmigrant.org. And you can find us and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and basically wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is structured into acts or chapters. You'll find chapter markers on your audio player, and you can use these to jump between the acts or chapters. Act 1. Communism in the 1970s and 80s in Romania. Jan Stoika, now a professor at UC Berkeley, grew up in the 1970s and 80s when Romania was communist and allied with the Soviet Union and ruled by the brutal Iron Hand dictator Nicolae Ceausescu. Almost everyone I knew didn't believe in communism. Hmm. Why was that? Because I think there are uh, maybe communist countries in which maybe the communists, at least at the beginning, improve the quality of life of people. Maybe, you know, people are dying of hunger and they address that problem, at least. But Romania, before the Second World War, um, economically was pretty good. It was maybe mid of Europe, uh, you know, building even airplanes and trains and cars and things like that. 
And in 1918, after uh, the First World War, uh, it was Greater Romania, it was all the parties, all the areas where Romanians were living, now being part of Romania, including Transylvania, which was uh, under Austro-Hungarian Empire until then. Right. right. And then the Romania was also a constitutional monarchy from 1850s. 1850s. Yeah. So basically, it was similar ways. Of course, there was corruption, but you know, modulo that. It was you can think like England. There are two big parties and a smaller one in general. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of so. It was constitutional monarchy. In 1919, it was also this uh, a reform to give land to peasants to to people. So it was Romania was was uh, was. Pretty good, and but then after Yalta, you know, the spheres of influence were divided. Yeah. Um, then it was Romania was like ninety percent under Russia, and I think it was in exchange for Greece to be ninety percent under Europe. You know, the, the Western allies. And there is another point. It's it's right now a country called Moldavia. Where still, even today, 70% of population speaks Romania, now including the president, it's Romanian descendant. So that was a territory which was claimed by Russia. This, like in many other countries, there was a communist party in Romania. Yeah. And before the Second World War, this kind of territory was part of Romania. But the Communist Party, because like many other communist country, parties, was controlled by Moscow, was yeah. basically advocating that actually this territory, which was part of Romania, it actually should belong to Russia. So you can imagine that even people are kind of on the left of the spectrum of the, of the, of the, of the, of the political party couldn't support that, right? Because it's... It's basically anti-national, right? You have a party which claims somehow that actually this part, which is inhabited mostly of people speaking Romanian, is like, yeah. is part, it should be part. And actually that's why Romania first, one of the reasons, first was in the Second World War, was allies with Germany because to liberate this territory which was taken by Russia at the beginning. Okay. But anyway. Yeah. 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 But the reason I'm saying that is that therefore the, the Communist Party was not very representative. And because it was not very representative, when, you know, Russia came and then it was a change of regime, Communist regime, is that some people say it was kind of 800 people. So if you have hundreds of thousands in a party, even left party, you are going to have some, well, probably some bad, some good people, but you have only so few it's going to be a very more brutal, right? Because you do not have a broad diversity in the party, right? right? So I think that's why in some sense, if you put this together, that's why in some sense, the communist was never really popular in Romania. My mother, but it was, this is before I was born, obviously. She was a university, she was doing geology. Um, and uh, she was, uh, Picked out for from the college because uh, it was decided that her parents they do not have they are not representative or kind of communist class. I see. Right? Yeah. My grandparent was uh, basically a 
policeman in the village. So that's one. So after that, after two years, it's, uh, she was, you know, she was accepted, accepted back. Um, but other than that, again, it's like you live into this, in some sense, it's a big lie, right? Because no one was fundamentally believing in communist yeah. and, yeah. but it's a lot of repression. Rada Mihalcha, now a professor at the University of Michigan, also grew up in the 1970s and 80s Romania. She starts off by contrasting growing up poor in Romania versus growing up poor today in the U.S. I think it's not the same for poor people in U.S., for instance. I mean, they see riches around them, so it's hard to be poor and not have things when others around you have it. For us, nobody had anything. I mean, everybody was under those electricity cuts, the rations, we were only allowed to have 10 eggs per month, half of bread loaf <laughs> per day, So, which I don't know how were calculated, but we had those rations. Was the food from the rations, was that enough for, for you, for the family? I think it was enough to the extent there was, but there wasn't often. So again, I mentioned 10 eggs. I remember that we had these yeah. pieces um, like cards that they would go and punch. If you get your eggs for the month, you would get a little hole, which said that you had it, and then you have to come back next month. But they were not always available. There were these super long lines. And I was, again, thinking recently, how that spread without, I mean, there were no phones, no mobiles, but it was through the neighbors, like, oh, there are eggs at that store over there. And everybody would run and <laughs> form a line to get those eggs. Uh, the same was for milk, for bread. So pretty much everything had a, a long line associated with it. And then, of course, meat and cheese were at the premium. I mean, if you get some, that was like a big deal celebration in the family. I see. So even meat was premium. Oh, yes. Meat particularly. Uh, meat and cheese, I think there was specials. And then other things, I don't know. Like I remember when I, sit, I stayed in line myself for hours because there were oranges. That was... Oh my gosh, it was super special. <laughs> we wouldn't get oranges. Um, I think there was emphasis on export. My recollection, vague, that a lot of what Romania produced was exported. And so um, not enough ended up for the actual Romanians. Yeah. In the worst times, uh, how many typically how many hours of power did you get during the day? So I actually don't know during the day. Uh, what I remember were the things that we didn't get when we actually needed um, in the mm. evening. So there are about four hours per day when there was like the saving. And those in winter times are were among typically from 5 p.m. to 9 p.m., 10 p.m. So so by the time you, you had to go to bed, <laughs> it would come back. There was yell around the neighborhood that is back, is back. <laughs> so people would turn it on. But then it was time for people to go to bed. And so then during the day, we would be out whether my parents at work, we at school, so we didn't necessarily need the light. Act two, money or lack thereof. We start with Jan Stoika, who describes salaries in communist Romania of the 1970s and 80s, and how waiters sometimes made more money than engineers. In socialism, you know, when Romania, 
everyone was getting more or less the same salary. And basically they were guaranteeing more or less the employment. Mm-hmm. Now everything, the salary were low and so forth. And mm-hmm. actually the, well, some of the category of people who are getting higher salaries, they're, you know, there are, if you're a waiter or someone like that, because you get tips, right? Yeah. Which you cannot get like as an engineer. And, but so that's why actually taking tips or if you are a doctor, some doctors to go to tips or things like that. And obviously if you're someone with certain position in the party, you're yeah. clearly you have a much higher salary. And Radha Mihalcha describes how when she was small, her family sometimes had to treasure hunt for money around the house just to buy basic essentials. He would get the salary at the end of the month. We didn't really get ends to meet that way because there was never enough, like how much my parents were were earning. I still remember they were getting actual physical money in an envelope, which doesn't really happen these days, right? Mm-hmm. And then it was just how much it will be left until the end of the month when the next round of envelopes with some money in it would come. I also have recollection, which, well, I mean, they might sound terrible now, and maybe they were, but for us, they were like fun times. There were times when we just didn't have any money left and there was nothing on the table and we wanted to get a bread. And that was the run with all five of us going around the house and trying to find something like a five cent, which is the Romanian bun, <laughs> or a 25 one. So we'll get the four lei and 25 bun, which would be the, the Romanian money to get a bread. And we'll look in maybe winter clothes pockets or wherever we would think there could be some drawers and we'll put all those together until, and that usually lasted for an hour or so, like <laughs> going around the house oh. and looking for those little coins. Oh. It wasn't very often, but it did happen uh, when we would just not have anything, anything left. It was like a treasure hunt treasure for money, hunt, but yes. this time, this time the, the stakes are essentially food and survival. But again, I mean, I, I really admire my parents. I know they really carry a lot of heavy lift, having three kids at home and being responsible for their upbringing during those times. They managed to shelter us really well. Like even those things, okay, there is no money, there is no food, we need to do something. It was really, like you said, the treasure hunt around the house. So it wasn't... <laughs> feeling so terrible for us as, as kids. And there was no notion of like saving up money or having a bank account. You didn't really have anything to save. So there was no notion of saving because what to save if you didn't. There was one thing which was interesting. Um, it was something that was organized among my parents' colleagues where they would put some money and it, they agreed among themselves. Um, like every say for every salary round, they would give a hundred to someone and that was one way for you to get at some point a larger amount. Like every month, say you give a hundred to this colleague, they had the lineup. Um, and then when your turn comes that everybody gives you that 100, you end up with a larger amount and then you can do something significant. I don't know if you want to buy furniture. So it was like a bank, but it was really organized among people. That was a collective an, bank. Yeah. yeah, it was one way of, it wasn't really saving, but getting like a larger amount all in one if you wanted to get something more significant. Jan Stoika describes the centralized assignment of jobs in communist Romania of the 1980s. Yeah, I was just graduating just before the communist fall. 
This is the Immigrant Computer Scientist podcast episode titled From Romania featuring immigrant computer scientists Jan Stoika and Rada Mihalcha. Act 3. Nicolae Ceausescu and the infamous folders that the communist government maintained about its own citizens. Nicolae Ceausescu was a dictator of Romania from 1965 until the fall of communism in 1989. We first talked to Jan Stoika who describes having to choose between physics and computer science when entering college and Jan also reveals why physics was so well funded in Romania the reason might surprise you uh, the other decision when i went to college i was pretty good at physics i went to all these olympiads also maths but in particular physics mm-hmm. and at that level if you are very good it's you can get into this the physics college Uh, without exam, right? So the top people, by the results in these Olympians, you can get in there yeah. without exam. So, yeah. and uh, physics, uh, I mean, it was a pretty good career there and it was well-funded because one of the children of Ceausescu, the dictator, yeah. has interest in physics, And so that's why it was pretty well funded. And Rada Mihalcha talks of how the government blacklisted her family and even imprisoned some of her family members. They were not allowed to travel. For one thing I mentioned there was no passport. My mom's side is from Italy and so that was a really a black point for us that we had relatives in a different country and 
for that matter, we are not allowed to have passports. My mom was there to ask to have a passport to go and see her cousins and aunts. Um, and I still remember the dark blue paper that we got with just one line. You cannot have a passport. And then otherwise, my grandfather, he was considered an intellectual, which was really bad <laughs> during communism. So even prior to the communism, he went and got um, schooling in Bologna, in Italy, in chemistry. Mm -hmm. He was from a somehow wealthier family. They started the first newspaper in Transylvania. And and that, when communism started, was, was really terrible. Um, and they suffer mm -hmm. much more than we did as like my immediate family. I know my grandfather was sent in prison multiple times for being mm -hmm. an intellectual um, in some of the worst prisons, along with others, which were labeled the same. I know some of my aunts were not allowed in school because of my grandfather being wow. this intellectual. So, yeah, the family had to suffer quite a bit, I would say, much more than we had when, okay, energy was out, there was no food, but there was still like day-to-day -day as opposed to being sent in prison. Along with my grandmother, who was from Italy, she could not see her mother or family, for that matter, because they were not allowed. Neither way. She could not go out to Italy to see them. They were not allowed in the country. And that's just one example. Um, I know other families have been affected a, a lot as well. That must have had a, an effect on your mother as she was growing up, you know, as, as her father is, is in and out of jail and is, they're not about, able to study. The war, the Second World War, that affected my my grandmother. My mom was still very little then. Um, and then, as I mentioned, there were these other implications that they were receiving different treatment because of the connection to Italy, which, I mean, what you could do, you cannot really <laughs> remove it somehow. So that was there, and there were these folders that the security kept on all families and I heard post-revolution that our family had um, such a folder there, which was all this, the upbringing from a healthy family for my, my grandfather, the, uh, my grandmother being from Italy. And so there are implications in terms of what they could do, what they were allowed to study or not. Yes, they did affect my mother and her siblings quite a bit. The Communist Party in Romania tried to recruit the best students from schools into the Communist Party. Here's Jan Stoika describing his own experience. The folders come up here as well. You grew knowing that, this is what everyone was telling me, that you have a folder, right, which you'll take, which, which in which, uh, you know, you, uh, everything is recorded, what you do. And I remember I was in high school and in high school, you know, the best, you know, the people who are doing well, they have good grades. You know, the party tries to bring them into their fold, right? And, and there are kind of different position or functions uh, you have uh, in, 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 you know, the high school and so forth. So I'm not going to go into details, but I was proposed for one of these function or positions. And I, I said no, because I saw that I, I, it's just a waste of time. Yeah. And I remember that it was a teacher. I was friend with her son. And when I went to play, it was probably it was whatever, 16 years old or 15 years old. 
And uh, she told me that, look, uh, you shouldn't have done that because that would go to your folder. You know, but I know people and that will not happen or something like that. So then I thought, okay, that's kind of real. Exams, exams, exams. Advancing in the school system inside communist Romania was all about writing exams. Here's Jan Stoika, professor at UC Berkeley, who grew up in Romania in the 1970s and 80s. The other things what maybe for, you know, uh, people, at least in the United States, what is different is that uh, how, what was the process? So a process of to get into a high school Mm. And the process to go into college, college, and this is a, is a little bit different from maybe even from India or China. It's more similar with uh, the French uh, model. So mm. to go to a, so the key here is that uh, when you are going to admit it, to get admitted to a high school or a college, you give a, you, you 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 take an exam, okay, yeah. and that's practically the only thing that matters. Uh, mm-hmm. So your GPA is not very important. When you go, when you get into the high school, I think you have two-day two exam. Each day it's a three-day exam, a three-hours exam. Mm-hmm. Uh, math and Romanian is equivalent, like you have English, right? Literature. Yeah. And uh, so that's one. And then there is another one. It says after two years in the high school, uh, there is another e- exam. And even then, because even in the, although the high school, it's uh, science oriented. You have another uh, a split to more science or less science. So you get another one. So the first exam is around eighth grade. And then this uh, bifurcation is around after 10 grades, grade. between 10 grades and 11 grades. And the exam for the college is again, you pick, you know, that's in general, it's pretty stressful because especially if, if in that, at that time when I took the exam, it was during the communist regime. And the reason is stressful because you take the exam, uh, you take the exam, you have to decide one school and uh, it's again, three days. Uh, in that, it's three days in that case, not two days. Two day is two exams of for math. It's basically analysis and geometry, and then one day physics. And um, the problem is that if so, if for somehow you do not uh, make the cut, hmm. um, there is another chance in the fall. The exams are like here in you know like spring. Um, yeah. And, but in fall, you only can go to universities which are not that great. They have still right. positions after uh, the first session. And here's Rada Mihalcha, professor at the University of Michigan, describing the state of education in Romania. 
and going to the Olympiads. Rada grew up in communist Romania in the 1970s, 80s and 90s. One thing that was going well, even during communism, was education. I think there was interest on all sides, on teacher side to educate the children, on student side to learn, because again, without spelling it out, we were seeing it as sort of the only way to escape what was around us. And one thing that was happening at that time was the Olympiads, like math Olympiads, physics Olympiads, informatics later on, Romanian history and so forth. And it was the way it was done. It was not, like I see here, for instance, there is like, who wants to go? They would go. And then if their school organized, it's fine. If not, not. It was like everybody was doing it. <laughs> so like the whole school was doing math Olympiad. And when I was in sixth grade, I did that too. That's when it was started in sixth grade. And yeah. I still recall that because it was, I guess, a surprise for everyone, including myself, that I did so well, going all the way to the nationals. And there were no expectations. Later years, I think my professor started to have expectations from me and maybe even myself because I did it once. Maybe I would do it a second time. Right. But that right. first year, I still remember now when I got the results and I was like, oh, you got the first prize for your, like for the state and then going up to nationals for math. And that was the one thing I, I really like math. I mean, even without those Olympiads, I like math. And I think I was doing well. And I was actually spending time with math because I, I enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Other sciences too, but I think math was my, my favorite. Act 5. Studying in school and in college. Rada Mihalcha describes how she studied during her school years in the 1980s and 1990s Romania when there was no electricity. We would study at home at candlelight. Um, so there was the candle for the light and then the oven turned on, which I realized in retrospect was quite dangerous for the weren't because there was no heat. I, re- I remember also we, are, we had the round table, which is a tiny detail, but we are all doing so. It's five of us, my parents and my sister and brother and myself, and we are doing homework. And my way of handwriting is really shaking things around. And I was always annoying my siblings because I was <laughs> moving them as I was doing my homework. And that was, I mean, that was really the way of living. We would come home from school around 5 p.m., which... During winter time, it really was dark already. So we would have the candle that would put, and my dad was just put something together with a little, <laughs> with a little light. That, but there was no electricity, so it's primarily candle. It, it was just fine. I think we as children didn't necessarily feel we were missing something. I mean, for that matter, everyone around us was the same. Jan Stoika describes that avoiding long military service was a motivation to get into the top colleges in Romania back in the 70s and 80s. And if you don't get there, or if you don't want to get into one of these other colleges, then, you know, the the army is just mandatory for everyone. Ah. The difference is that if you get into university, into college, it's only nine months, right? But if you don't, it was basically one year and a half. So you actually waste two years. So that's kind of, it was, it's pretty uh, stressful. The point though is that why I'm uh, telling you all of these things is because, you know, the way the rules 
actually uh, changes your behavior, right? It's like had an impact on the behavior. And the fact that, you know, the GPA didn't count, activities didn't count. You don't write an essay, you don't write any of these things. You know, there is an exam you, you, uh, you, you take after uh, you, you finish the high school, baccalaureate, it's, it's called. It's, it's again, it's a French term. And basically to, 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 to validate the fact that you know the basics, right? This is for everyone, right? The entire, uh, the entire country. But that doesn't matter that much. But again, the only thing that matters when you go to college, really, it's about this three days exam. You know, you are, it's already like in the last two years of high school, people try to focus solely on the things, uh, what on to study for the kind of colleges, yeah. um, they, they are, uh, they decided to go to. I also asked Radha Mihalcha about the entrance exams into universities in Romania in the eighties and nineties. And she also talked about the benefits of cohorts in her Romania university at Cluj Napoca. That's quite different from the way U.S. universities' curriculum is structured nowadays. Take a listen. So each university had its own entrance exam. Yes, yes. Which also, I think there there were some agreements. Actually, I don't even know the insights of that. There were some agreements in terms of, I would imagine, the sort of the peer institution in Bucharest would hold similar exams in math and physics. They were run by them, but I imagine there were some agreements as to what was tested. Um, the one thing that was known to be a difference was what was the grade that you would need to get in. So you would know that roughly with a seven you get in, or roughly with a nine you get in, or with a five, or and then depending on how students would go in, those that wouldn't would be moved to other other institutions or other majors that would admit with that that grade, um, or you would end up staying sort of at home for a year and do the exam again to pass and go go somewhere. Well, one thing that I did like was having the same group of peers throughout my years. So there was this one year of um, students who were doing computer science. And I recall there was 80 of us split into different subgroups for the labs. But the 80 of us who started we were almost the 80 who finished. I mean, some may have dropped, maybe a few have joined, but it's not like the way we do it here where we take, you have to accumulate a certain number of credits and you pick and choose classes. So we ended up as a group of students who really knew each other and we were very like united in a way. Um, and I actually like that. I like that you get a social network that's Cohort. very yeah. tight as opposed to, here, I'm actually surprised even for younger years, like in K-12, where you don't spend year after year with the same group. They just sort of mix and match after every year, which is surprising to me. So that's one that's one thing that I, I really liked. In terms of things that I see here, I'm not sure that I would have wanted them that way. Like another difference was that primary grade was coming from exams. And so I wasn't, now I can say it, but I wasn't the model student. I would never go to courses. I would never attend lectures. I would just get from colleagues who were attending. I would copy their notes 
and then study. And so my emphasis was really doing exams. I would study really hard and get good grades. And that's because unlike here, there was nothing that would keep us engaged. So there were no assignments throughout the year. There were no like midterm. There was not such thing. There is just one exam and that's that, that you get the grade. And I think the student me wouldn't like me saying this, <laughs> that <laughs> to have that to keep students engaged. I actually yes. like the way I've done it. Uh, but thinking of other students, I think keeping students engaged throughout the year, it's more beneficial than putting so much emphasis in just, I don't know, two weeks of exams. One could do the way I've done it, where you never show up to anything. You just show up for exams and you get good grades. Uh, but there was very little engagement. I also asked Radha Mihalcha about the fraction of girls in science and in math in schools in Romania back in the 1980s. The teams that I, were, I was on, there were more girls than boys. Um, mm. in the math Olympiads. So that was not something that I ever paid attention. I never considered there was any difference. I mean, of course, I would see difference like in terms of games they like to play or how we'd separate during the recess, uh, but not in terms of intellectual ability or any of like the diversity issues we see here. So it was just mm. going to the Olympiads altogether. Sometimes it happens there are more girls, sometimes more boys, but it was... It wasn't really something that I paid attention to in the early years. Were there any expectations from girls and women as they were growing up that, well, you know, science and math is not for you or... The way I perceive it, and again, I give a lot of credit to, to my parents and the way they they raise us, there, there weren't. I can see in how maybe in the more rural areas there would be, for us, I, I never perceived any of that. On the contrary, if I would have had some beliefs, maybe you do the opposite that you see now, that girls were doing better and they are better in certain topics. So I had the opposite beliefs. You're listening to From Romania with immigrant computer scientists Jan Stoika and Rada Mihalja. This is the Immigrant Computer Scientists Podcast. Act 6. Revolution in 1989 in Romania. The violent revolution in 1989 Romania overthrew Ceausescu and ushered in a transition towards democracy in Romania. Jan Stoika describes the reasons that fueled the 1989 revolution. At the end of the day, probably you can get away with many things as long as people are getting taken care of. But when economy goes and then there are difficulties in, you know, in uh, long lines to get gas, to get food and so forth, then people are not going to be happy no matter who is going to lead, is leading the country. I asked Radha Mihalcha about her memory of the 1989 Romanian revolution. She also talked about why the revolution was a long time coming. I know my, uh, my father and my sister, they went out in the city when they were like, the army shooting and and then we were all stuck to the radio and TV sets to to hear what's happening. So those changes were everybody wanted them. But again, in retrospect, thinking about communism, I think that was um, I would say it's smart. It's a terrible way of controlling a society. So there were like twenty million Romanians and a handful of people at the leadership, and still they managed to control them for a long time. 
And that's because of the lack of trust. Like we wouldn't trust our neighbors to talk about Ceausescu or about, I don't know, our Italian connections or other things, just because you don't know. I mean, are they really trustworthy people or are they going to tell the police and then next day, who knows what happens? And so it was really very broken social network. And that's what I think delayed things a lot. And when eventually things happened, there was a lot of pressure. It was like a pressure cooker. <laughs> like everybody was ready. It was just like the worst life you could imagine. But nobody would trust the neighborhood to actually start the movement earlier. So when eventually it happened, that just exploded. Now, of course, it took a while. I mean, Romania is still undergoing changes. It just takes a while to change for once to change the economy, but I think changing the people is taking even longer, right? Even now, I realize I have, it's not that I don't trust people, I do, but I'm not the most outspoken. Like there are certain things that I always have like, should I say, should I not? Which is from my upbringing. I was always told, don't, don't tell anyone about this or about that. We are listening to the radio about things that we are not supposed to and... My family always told us, don't just don't tell anyone because it's, it's right. nobody's supposed to know. So even now I have some of that and I, I can see how millions of other Romanian, Romanians have, right. have some of it too. So changing, it, it really takes a generation plus to change. So it's still undergoing changes. Did life in Romania improve after the 1989 revolution? I asked Jan Stoika. Very quickly. I mean, it's... Uh... Very quickly, you know, like in other countries, but maybe in particular in Romania, it's like after revolution, the biggest problem, it was corruption. Actually, politically, there are people who are, I mentioned to you, this kind of this uh, two parties, um, main parties, actually some of their leaders, young leaders, which was, uh, which are exiled, came back. So they immediately created this kind of old historical party. Even the former king came back. So, so it was changed very quickly. What about the tech industry in Romania? Has it grown since the 1990s, 2000s? Here's Jan Stoika. The education was very good. And especially the education was very good in elementary school and high school. The college was not that great. You didn't have a lot of options and so forth and becomes to be too politicized. But middle and the high school are very good. Right now, I think, you know, it remains still good and comparatively. And, you know, there are many companies, like, for instance, you, you pass the company, you pass, yeah. which went uh, IPO last year. I don't know, it's $30 billion valuation. They are this robotic automation, robotic automatic or automation processes. I think it's, it's called RIP. Uh, it was it was founded in Romania. Hmm. So uh, you know there are a few companies. There is a security company, pretty successful startup. So you can see the signs, and there are certain progress. Of course, there is still corruption and everything, but but you know exactly. Romania is part of European Union, is part of NATO, and all of these stuff. Here's Rada Mihalcea talking about how life in Romania changed after the 1989 revolution. So there were changes. One thing which I know it's minor, but during communism, we had to wear uniforms <laughs> and that stopped after the revolution. So everybody would wear whatever, which is something that we sense. We started seeing more like people coming in. So having that exposure to some foreigners, like even hearing another language 
like another language other than what we would hear, like Hungarian, German, English, say, spoken on streets or Italian, so which was a sign of more people coming in. There wasn't like a huge change in terms of how much we would have, like the, um, on the table, for instance. Now there was a lot more available in stores, but then the money in the family wasn't necessarily all of a sudden much more. So in terms of how much we could afford, it, it wasn't like a drastic change. But we started seeing change sort of immediately after. Still good. I mean, like I said, even now it shows that it's still developing, but um, at least in terms of immediate needs, like books, for instance, is one thing that I, I love books. And so being able to see them on the shelves in the bookstore or only in your <laughs> grandpa's shelves, it makes a difference. So buying yeah. books that you actually are interested in, that was a, that was a big difference. So we saw the signs of the like change right away, but there was, of course, a lot of still communism still trickling in uh, people who were very active during communism now all of a sudden turning tables and apparently being in charge with the change which a lot of people didn't like and i think for a good reason like so the same people who ran the communist bureaucracy were also running right i mean they just say well i don't believe in that anymore now i'm in charge of this new place and People didn't like that. And so there was a lot of that still happening. Did the food and power situation improve? That did. So power, I don't remember having had those hours at the time of um, no power. Um, and food, it started, like we started having it in store. It was now primarily how much you could get with the money that you had. And then there were other changes. I know my mom was laid off at some point because of a lot of the changes that happened in the company where she was working, which was one of the communist factories. And it was going well. It was sort of the company in Romania to produce refrigeration, like whatever it was needed for refrigeration. But because of all those changes for a temporary, like for a period of time, she was laid off. And then she started working again. And there were these changes that would impact you in other ways. With all the change now, there is no more guarantee that everybody would have a place to work. Was she able to visit her family in Italy? Were you able to travel as a family? My mom and dad did travel in the 90s. So like 1990, yeah. right after. Yeah. Um, they yeah. did travel, just the two of them. And I recall my mom's stories. It was very special. It was the very first time she went outside. Even just seeing stores with light because those were not the stores we had in Romania and a lot of I don't know a lot of different cheeses that's what she mentioned like there was this showcase of lots of different cheeses you never see that in Romania so a lot of these little things that now we take for granted that made a huge impression on her and then seeing her relatives just seeing another place it was the first time that she went out and she was already in her like um, in 89, she was already, yes, in her uh, 40s. Act 7. First Encounters with Tech. With computers, programming languages, and computer science. These first encounters happened pretty early for both our guests in Romania. First up is Rada Mihalcha, professor at the University of Michigan, 
She grew up in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s Romania. When we do um, exams for going from middle school to high school, so middle school for us is up to eighth grade, like here. Um, And then you do an exam to go to a high school. And so the choice I made was to go for the high school that was best in math and my hometown. Mm. And that also happened to be the only high school that also had some computer science. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how I started to be exposed to that. And so in when I first started, so there was ninth grade, I did a lot of pen and paper. And I actually value a lot pen and paper computer science. I think it removes a lot of frustrations. You learn the concepts, fundamentals. I did a lot of those, like just drawing algorithms, um, doing, I don't know, binary conversion. So a lot of it was on paper really and if you would get to type your program in a computer it was a big deal so that was sort of the highlight of a semester or something and then we did we had these computers that we type i still recall <laughs> there were tapes that we record our program on a tape which was after we advanced from the punch cards <laughs> and primarily basic that was in ninth grade um, then we did some c in 10th grade uh, then pascal 11 and then see again in the um, 12th grade, so in the senior year. Um, and uh, again, some on computers, but most of it really learning the, the concepts. And we are still feeling, I, I remember stories from, from high school on how, so we are doing also assembly and some of this like really low level. And I remember stories from my high school that there were students before us who were learning the so-called um, zero one language where you actually have to type everything <laughs> in zeros and ones wow. so i was thinking like wow now we made a lot of progress good i don't have to type all those zeros and ones that's really low level. yes yes the lowest <laughs> could be uh-huh. yeah and here's jan stryka currently professor at uc berkeley he grew up in 1970s and 80s romania when i was probably in the eighth grade my father was you know both then a Timex Sinclair. Mm. They were this kind of British computers. And I got that one. And uh, I remember it was this kind of keys, which, you know, you don't have really, you know, QWERTY or something like that. You have keys in it. You have mnemonics for like programs to write a program, like four or yeah. something like that. Yeah. 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 Uh, and so that was one. And uh, I started to program and play, you know, around. What was your first programming language? Basic, man. Basic. basic. It, came, it, came with, it came with basic. <laughs> 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 and then I got uh, a Commodore, um, Commodore yeah. uh, later. And then in uh, when I was in college, um, I started actually in my first year. I was doing, uh, I was doing, I was writing programs on... Uh, Fortran punch cards. Uh, okay. So I, I, you know, you go, you you write, you, you go into this room and you punch the cards and you have your stack of cards and you go and give to people to run it and come the next day to see the results. Right. Uh, but quickly after that, uh, you know, there was a lab PCs or brought in. Uh, very soon after, it was basically 82, 83, you know, very quickly after I think IBM PC was 81. And uh, there are a bunch of very smart, you know, very good faculty there who actually quickly, you know, also had a Romanian clone, so to speak, PC clone. Mm. Yeah. 
Act 8. Languages spoken. In school, on the streets with friends, and at home. First up is Radha Mihalcha. So it was all Romanian for me. But another thing that sort of marked my childhood, aside from what I mentioned, is also the presence of other languages. So in yeah. Cluj, for instance, and in the whole Transylvania, there is a minority Hungarian. And so there is education that's also happening in Hungarian. Like in the schools that I went to, there were maybe two or three classes at every level that were taught in Romanian, and there was one that was taught in, in Hungarian. And so that was exposure that I had sort of throughout my childhood, hearing other languages around me, aside from also Italians on my grandma's side and hearing like them sometimes talking to my mom or siblings in Italian. Um, it was Hungarian in that part of Romania. Other parts would also have German. Majority was Romanian, but there were classes taught in other languages as well. Did you have Russian textbooks? No, I was past that. My mom and dad did. <laughs> and my dad still has them in, in his on his shelves at home. Um, like some of the technical books he would read in Russian or some in German. And they learn Russian and German at school. Uh, we were past that. We were already doing... Like we were learning foreign languages, which I always appreciate. I did English and French. Others did, I don't know, English and German or French and German, but... Always there were like a couple of foreign languages we learn, but no textbooks. No. And I asked Jan Stoika what language, apart from Romanian, he spoke with his school friends in Romania during the 70s and 80s. So it's English. Was that taught in school, English? It's taught in school. Unfortunately, the other, school, the other language maybe doesn't come as a surprise was Russian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can uh, imagine that. But it was almost, you know, another language was French, but I would say English was pretty universally taught in schools, mm. uh, besides Russia. So science and math were taught in English or Russian? Everything was taught in Romanian, but you learn the English, you know, the English. I see. And, so, and, and uh, Russian, foreign languages. And then, and then at home and on the streets with your friends, you spoke mostly Romanian. We spoke mostly Romanian. Yeah. Romanian. This is the Immigrant Computer Scientist podcast episode titled From Romania, featuring immigrant computer scientists Jan Stoika and Radha Mihalcha. Act 9. Immigrating to the U.S. Both our guests came to the U.S. for their PhDs. Jan Stoika came from Romania to the U.S. in 1994 after working a few years there in Romania. During communism, no one went to the United States for studies. Right, right. So it was just opening. Well, unless people who emigrated, right? But it was a, it was pretty close. So what made you think of even applying? Because people started to apply, other people. Rada Mihalcha immigrated from Romania to the U.S. in 1997 for her PhD. And really, chance, randomness, played a major role in her decision to even consider coming to the U.S., Here's Rada. I wasn't considering coming to the United States, so that's one thing. I didn't feel I was ready to work. Well, sometimes choices are made for us. 
So like I said, I never yeah. considered United States. Um, and I also mentioned that I wasn't this model student going to school every day. Um, and so when I was in, so it was my senior year, my graduating year, the fifth year for me. Um, and that's when email came in. So it was a big deal. Yeah. Oh, we get email and every student was getting an email account. And when every student got an email account, I wasn't there because <laughs> I wasn't going to school. And so I came some days after and said, oh, you know, can you please create also an email account for me? Uh, I said, yeah, sure, I, I will. So they created an email account for me. And I think it's because I came days after, they linked it by mistake to the master year. So there were the mailing list. And so there was, my account was linked to the master year. And so that's how I got an email that was sent um, by a professor in the United States talking about scholarships to do a PhD in the United States, which was sent to the master students, but I wasn't a master student. I just got it because of that mistake, because of me not <laughs> going to school. Um, and that's the first time ever that I saw, well, maybe this could be an option to go and do a PhD somewhere. Um, and I, I applied. So it was between the time when I got that email by mistake and the time I was here in the United States was just like a couple of months. I just went for it. I applied. I didn't apply anywhere else. I didn't even know that application was a thing. I just had that email that was talking about doing a PhD at SMU in Dallas. Yeah. And I sent my yeah. application in. I didn't have a master, which was unusual, but they said, well, you have good grades, so why not? <laughs> so That's such a serendipitous sequence of events. You're not going to class and then the email coming and then you're going in to request an email, but then getting put in the wrong list. But then you get an email there that points you to the programs in the U.S. It was. And now it's my daughter primarily who's pointing to that email because I met my husband here. He's from Romania too, but I met him here. Uh, he was also doing a PhD at SMU. So she's saying, well, if there wasn't that email, I wouldn't have... I wouldn't exist because I wouldn't have met. So a lot, exactly. a lot of what followed can be connected there. I think this actually happens a lot to all of us, except that yeah. a lot of times we cannot put our finger on it. Like I, I know I can put my finger on it because of that mistake, because I wasn't. So I, I know when it happened. A lot of times we don't know when it happens, but there are a lot of these choices that just fully change our trajectories and we are not even aware. Act 10. Links to Homeland Romania Today. First, we hear Jan Stoika, professor at UC Berkeley. I asked him whether he considered returning to Romania when he finished his PhD in the US in 2000. Going back to Romania, I did not um, at that time. I was educated in a very kind of open way. So one thing which I started to resent very early on mm. was nationalism. Because mm. the communism was using the nationalists as a, as, a, uh, as, a, as a very potent tool to unify people, right? right? And yeah. part of the nationalism is not only the fact that, oh, we are under attack, but also we are special, you are special, right? And have all these stories why Romanians are special, because you need to justify it. 
And because in some sense was brought by, it, it was, was coming from the Communist Party. And because the Communist Party, again, people did not believe myself in the Communist Party. Yeah. Yeah. I developed this kind of reaction against the nationalist discourse. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I always felt that my duty is in, in some, hopefully I want to think in a broader terms of, you know, how can I, help the society at large, not only Romanian society. Of course, I'm going back and I've gone back almost every year. Uh, you know, I'm meeting with, uh, you know, my former faculties, former colleagues. I can help wherever I can. And Radha Mihalcha, professor at the University of Michigan, describes how she continues to contribute to Romanian academia by staying in the U.S. You see, Radha created in Romania the equivalent of the U.S. Piquet's Award, an award given to early career faculty to fund their research. Here's Radha Mihalcha. I keep going back to Romania, um, and I do want to contribute to science and engineering in Romania, or generally yeah. like contribute to lifting Romania up yeah. and people there. And the considerations that I made were... If I were to go back, which would definitely have the bonus of being closer to family, I don't think I would have the power that I have from here to contribute back. Mm. Um, I actually very much admire people who do research in Romania, and I tell them all the time. I think they are actually the one who really make a difference by doing it without having the resources. Like here in U.S., we do have a lot of yeah. resources. Um, so there is a lot that would support us if you want to do something there, you can actually do it. There is much harder. You don't have just these funds to go to conferences, to buy computers. Um, so it's much harder. So those who actually do it, I really admire them. On the other side, if I had the choice, like going there and struggling to do the research, then I couldn't really give back. And one thing that I'm really fond of is this award that I started some years ago, inspired by the one that I got myself, the PK's Presidential Award. Um, I realized that there is no such thing in Romania, so I started one myself, working with um, the city of Cluj. And so that's something that we do every year. It's now eight years where we give research awards to young like young researchers in science and engineering from across the field. It's not only computer science. Um, oh. And so that's one way of, of giving back, of encouraging research. And I got, I mean, I heard from many people that they appreciate that because it's hard and having that word of appreciation, what you are doing, it's a good thing. It helps. Here is something in recognition of all the hard work you do. They, they appreciate yeah. that. And think maybe I couldn't have done that if, if I were back. This was the lead episode on the Immigrant Computer Scientist podcast. And this episode was titled From Romania, featuring two distinguished and stalwart immigrant computer scientists who immigrated from Romania to the U.S. in the 1990s. But what you heard on today's episode were merely excerpts. Coming up in the next episode, next week, is the full interview with Jan Stoika, creator of Apache Spark, Mesos, Ray, and many other influential data processing systems. Hear Jan Stoika's full story on next week's episode. What drives his entrepreneurship? How problems cascade from one startup into the next startup? How Jan handles failures and the fear of being wrong? And what Jan thinks life may have been like 
if he had grown up in the US instead of in Romania. All that is next week, featuring a lot more details beyond what you've heard on today's episode. Stay tuned. As usual, you can find all episodes and detailed episode guides on our website, csimmigrant.org. Again, that's csimmigrant.org. And you can find us and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and basically wherever you get your podcasts. All the music used in episodes of the Immigrant Computer Scientist podcast is royalty-free. All voice recordings were performed with and are reproduced with full consent of narrators and participants. You can find music credits on our website. Join the online discussion about this podcast on all major social media, including Twitter and Facebook, with the handle CSImmigrant and hashtag CSImmigrant. And of course, the episode guide is available at our website, csimmigrant.org. This is the Immigrant Computer Scientists Podcast.